Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, folks? Wow, this was a great episode. We had such an amazing time with Dr. Raiden. His words have a very specific potency. A huge thanks to Dr. Raiden for lending us his time and doing this interview. Also, big thanks to my good friend Misha for helping me co-host this episode. Dr. Raiden is a big hero of his, so I hope you guys enjoy this. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, and if you have any feedback or just want to shoot me an email, I welcome those. Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is traversing the realms of parapsychology as we welcome my guest, Dr. Dean Radin, my good friend Misha from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, whose background is in microbiology, is going to be helping co-host for the show. Dr. Radin, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Dr. Radin, I mean, you're... Your online biography says that you were first interested in psychic abilities at the age of 12. You've written three books, uh, over 200 articles, and you've done uh, countless lectures. I mean, how how did this work start for you? Well, I think like a, a lot of children who start reading uh, fairy tales and science fiction uh, as soon as they discover books, that... I immediately was wondering as a child, uh, what of this is pure fantasy and what of this might be true? And of course, children don't have a, a very good way to discriminate from one to the another, one, one topic to the next. And of course, then you, you go to high school, you go to college and beyond, and you learn very rapidly that there are certain topics that are taken seriously and others are dismissed. So throughout my whole college career and graduate school and beyond, I never heard anything mentioned about psychic or mystical experience within a scholarly tradition. Now, that's partially because I was going through engineering and going through psychology curricula, and so these topics wouldn't necessarily come up. But on the other hand, our entertainment industry is saturated with it. And I always thought that it was a little odd that uh, experiences that people report throughout history and in all cultures and even today, many scientists report psychic experiences. Why isn't this discussed? So I started looking into it in a more serious way in terms of the science when I was in graduate school. And I was surprised to read that there had always been, for about 130 years, a small group of scientists in, in all countries who have been applying the best methods of the day to test whether in principle some of the experiences that people report or that are reported in legends, could they have any credence to them at all? And I was surprised 
I was surprised to find that there is such a literature, and I started to do experiments as I had read. And to my surprise, I was able to repeat some of the things that I had read about. And that, that basically hooked me, because it's almost like there's a secret in plain sight. There's something of very high interest that should be of high interest to scientists, but that the 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 way science has developed, you're simply not allowed to talk about it. I thought that was just odd. Yeah, I mean, um, you you have had quite the career here. I mean, your your experiments are quite far ranging. How many experiments do you think you've done through your research? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, actually, I I don't have any idea. Come to think of it, probably <laughs> a, a couple of dozen. Maybe some more. I don't. I don't really know. Is there any one that is more remarkable for you than the others? Well, no. I can't say that I'm blasé about it at this point because I'm. I continue to be interested in uh, the nature of these experiences and what they might mean. Uh, but I think every time I plan an experiment, uh, run it, and get a significant outcome, I'm almost as astonished as I was. When I began, and it's it's partially because we science, in terms of theory, has yet to catch up with the, the, simply the empirical data. Uh, there are hints about how theory might go, but we don't have very good explanations yet. So, one of the things that I've, I've discovered here is that people like myself who go into this as empiricists have to have a, a high tolerance for ambiguity. And I have a very high tolerance for not knowing, and it doesn't bother me. But for a, a lot of colleagues, it does bother them a lot that they don't have a good explanation, and they they don't like it at all. Uh, Dr. Radin, this is Misha here. Um, I think I've read in some of your works that, um, like you said, you're not blasé, but you've sort of moved on from wondering if the paranormal is real or if psi effects are real. You've maybe moved on from that to really wondering what the mechanism is. And um, I can completely identify with that as a scientist. But maybe for the listeners, I was wondering, um, uh, you know, what is the most amazing thing you've seen? Is there uh, some moment where you go, where you were in your career looking at some data or uh, something like that, and you, you said, oh my gosh, I just I just can't believe this, but it really is real. That, that moment when it clicked for you, um, you know, because you mentioned some interest in your childhood, but as you, you know, get a, a university degree and so forth, you uh, you learn other tools to look at um, problems more precisely. And, well, I'm rambling, but I'm wondering what is um, a mo- one of those moments for you? Well, it's actually a very good question because you could, just by reading the literature, uh, come to accept that these phenomena are real. You would probably reach the conclusion that they're in the general population. We're talking about fairly weak effects. And the best analogy I can think of is if you described to somebody how to play golf and they had never actually done it before, you give them the club and you give them a ball and you explain what to do, they're probably not going to do very well because they either don't have the talent and they haven't practiced. So the same is true for the vast majority of psi experiments. We're giving people who don't claim any special abilities and may or may not have any experience with it, an artificial task that they have to do in a certain way right now, right in front of us. Mm-hmm. And even under those conditions, you get people who can do things. So 
that data alone for a lot of scientists who who haven't worked with exceptional subjects, I can see how they would they would be interested but not really convinced. And that's where I was up until 1985 because I was getting results, but not spectacular, but enough to keep my interest. So what convinced me was when I was recruited for what is now known as the Stargate program, the, the U.S. government's secret at the time uh, research program, and I got the, the top secret briefing. This is what they would tell to people who were read on to the project. And just from the, the slides, I remember uh, I was blown away because I was seeing uh, what at the time were, were highly classified examples of remote viewing. Many of those are now public domain. So that was part of it. And I was thinking, holy smoke, this, this is the kind of thing that is being briefed at the top echelons of government and the military uh, with some details that are, are not yet public. Like these are real missions. These are practical applications. What really cemented it for me was meeting the people, the remote viewers who had done those tasks and watching them do it in person. The briefing is one thing, but watching it happen as it happens is another thing. That's what convinced me that uh, not only is it real, but it is extremely odd in the sense that at the time, this is 1985 when, when I was on that program, at the time... The, the prevailing opinion within the scientific community is that this stuff simply is impossible. It does not exist. And yet, so from outside the building, we're working in a realm where nobody believes it. Inside the building, it's taken for granted and we're trying to push hard and trying to understand what's going on. And so, in retrospect, it actually made a lot of sense from the point of view of working on a secret program. You don't want people to know that this is possible. Because it, it it reduces the effectiveness of the method as a tool. Now that it is public domain, uh, of course, remote viewing is sometimes vastly embellished beyond what it actually can do. But at least a lot of people have a sense, because they've taken training courses here and there, that this is a real phenomenon. Uh, in some cases, for talented people, it could be used for practical things. But... To make a long story short, the thing that really convinced me was seeing very high level of performance uh, in a in a condition where there was high credibility that this was real. Yeah, in terms of remote viewing, I know that uh, Major Ed Dames has made predictions that Obama will be the last U.S. president and uh, elections will be canceled and so forth. I think he's even said that a group of remote viewers came to sort of a consensus about that. So if there's going to be another election, I want to hold his feet to the fire on that. Um, but since you brought up remote viewing, um, you know, many of the world's teachers talk about love being the fabric of the universe. And if love is the foundation of, let's say, some kind of information field or something that might be involved um, with psi abilities, then is there any sort of morality to psi? For example, if someone used remote viewing to help a loved one, would that work when maybe trying to use remote viewing to kill someone would fail? Is there any sort of, uh, you know, difference in that regard? I don't think so. I think uh, we're talking about a, a natural phenomena which is simply wrapped into the fabric of reality. Uh, the way that we use it is up to each individual. And you see this and you look in, in almost every spiritual tradition, there are warnings and cautions about 
how much your ego is involved in this. So in story form, uh, the only difference between a Jedi Knight and Darth Vader is whether the ego gets inflamed. It's the falling to the dark side. And, but the same skills are there. And I, I think that is probably the case. Dr. Raiden, I, you know, I, I find this, this very intriguing. And I, I'd like to talk more about what you saw during this, this top secret experiment more a bit later. But do you feel like this is part our, of our evolutionary biology? Is this where the next level of human is is headed by sort of understanding this, using it? I think it's actually been around from the very beginning. It, in other words, we're not creating magic along the way. We're not making up something new. If anything, we're devolving away from what used to be a natural phenomenon or more readily available phenomenon. A uh, case can be made, for example, that the frontal lobes get in the way of most psychic experience. And the evidence for that includes things like uh, looking at the neuroscience of meditation, where you find that very advanced meditators show inhib inhibition of the frontal lobes. And they also show a higher degree of spontaneous psychic experience and mystical experience. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of the training involved in various forms of psychic effects is getting the analytical side of the brain out of the way. And of course, if you can do that with the frontal lobes, you find a way of inhibiting it through stimulation, through meditation or whatever, or certain psychedelics, uh, you, people invariably get better. So from that perspective, then I, I see an evolutionary push is to maintain the ability of an organism to survive. And if you have the capacity to pay attention to what's happening on Pluto, you may miss the tiger in front of you. So think about a couple million years of evolution that will constrain uh, human beings to get closer and closer to attention on here and now, as opposed to there and then. And the more you do that, the less and less capable we are of paying attention to things far away, which is the essence of psychic phenomena. You know, the reason, the reason I, I appreciate your answer and the reason that I ask is because I, I wonder for the people listening, how does this affect a person in their everyday existence? I mean, how does being able to affect the consequence of a, n a random number generator, you know, how does that affect me? How, I mean, how can I, how can I use this for my benefit in my everyday life? Most of us don't need these abilities for everyday life. At least most of us who, who uh, live and work in a Western world where many of the things that used to kill us pretty readily don't do that anymore because it's relatively safe. Uh, if you live in a, in a war zone or you live in a, a place with enormous amounts of uncertainty, then it can be useful because you, get a, you can get a glimpse of what's about to happen. So in thinking about the experiments, like random number generators and the Gonsfeld telepathy experiment and all those sorts of things, all of those are artificial constructs. They're, they're designed very specifically to look for, is this phenomena possible in principle? And as an artificial construct, as all experiments are, it's not really designed to say, well, what, what can we use this for? Or what, can, what more can we learn about the nature of 
ourselves based on this kind of experiment. There, there are tools, specific kinds of tools to allow us to probe the nature of these phenomena. Uh, when it comes to uh, what do we do with it, that then we can talk in slightly different terms where we wouldn't talk about psychic phenomena, but rather, uh, did you ever have a gut feeling about something that turned out to be true or about a person? Or did you ever pick up the phone and you knew who was calling before you looked at caller ID and that sort of thing? So these are not typically life and death uh, instances, but they're, they're reminders that the phenomena are always there, just, just slightly below the level of awareness for most people. And the folks that we call psychics are ones who, where it's not quite as deep in the unconscious. It's more readily available. Uh, Dr. Raiden, Misha again, um, you know, you talked about intuition, and <clears throat> intuition is a loaded word because it's generally understood to mean something that's, you know, helping you make good decisions or something supporting your growth. Um, if you agree with that basic definition of intuition, have you ever had any amazing things like, you know, don't fly on 9-11 or something like that? Well, the conventional explanation for intuition is forgotten knowledge. Like you, you learn something at some point and then you don't remember that you know that. And the classic case is a fireman who just suddenly runs outside of a burning building and doesn't know why, but at that moment it crashes. Uh, and so the explanation for that is that the firefighter after a while, while learns that when you hear certain sounds and you see the flames in a certain way, that is just that happens just before a building collapses. So their intuition and training saved them. More interesting a case, of course, is when things happen where you don't have any expertise and there's no way to anticipate what's happening, in which case maybe then it's precognition. So do I have personal examples of this? Yes, nothing quite as dramatic as that. But to give an example, for me, most of these kinds of experiences occur in, the, in dreams. So one time I had a dream uh, where... I, I was in a car accident and the airbags inflated and there was a lot of dust inside the car and broken glass and things of that sort. So I woke up in the morning and was kind of disturbed by this dream because it didn't seem to match anything I had seen during the day or anything really. And as a result, I decided I was going to drive to work a way that I knew was a little bit safer because it had traffic lights and it was more controlled traffic pattern. So I go to, I get up to one of the traffic lights and I'm just sitting there waiting for the light to turn and then bang I get rear-ended by the car behind me well he was texting and thought he saw the light change and accelerated and rammed into the back of my car well this was an accident I've never had an accident before uh, this was not something that I caused because I was just sitting there and it wasn't anywhere near as bad as the dream was the airbags didn't inflate, for example. Uh, but I found, well, that's interesting. Here's something that never happened to me before. The previous night I had a dream which is kind of like this, involving a car and an accident. Uh, it's never happened before that, never happened since. So it's difficult to assign a chance probability for such an event. Uh, but this is, from a skeptical perspective, you'd say, well, there's seven or eight billion people and there are a lot of dreams every night and some of them are going to come true. 
all of which is true. Uh, that's why we go to the laboratory, where we know exactly what a chance outcome is. And because of those tests, we know that in principle, occasionally, you can have actual information from a future event that impinges on your present. Right. Yeah, as far as the firefighters, you mentioned the uh, the the subtle clues, like the different sounds and everything else. And I guess I was more talking about um, an area where the person would have no expertise at all. Um but to change gears a little bit, in the historical literature, <clears throat> gut feeling or intuition has had, well, has been associated with various body centers, heart, stomach, the gut, etc. Um, regardless of the location, there always seems to have been this respect for <clears throat> the, um, the mind and the body. Do you have any thoughts about um, when the body is trying to give information? And I know some of this relates to your experiments with the skin conductivity and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on the body being psychic more so than the uh, the thinking and the brain being psychic? I think that the, the body is probably identical or almost identical to what we normally think of as the unconscious mind. It's all connected. And maybe one of the reasons why when there are transplants that sometimes people take on the characteristics of the person's organ that was transplanted into them. It's kind of a cellular memory. So it's not clear to me then that just because uh, you have strange gut feelings that it's literally the belly brain that's trying to get your attention. It may be more that the belly brain and your unconscious are one and the same thing, slightly different ways of expressing itself or talking about it perhaps, uh, but that, that I don't make a strong distinction then between mind and body. In fact, one of the ways you can see this is in the, the yoga tradition, for example, that after a while you get extremely good uh, control over your autonomic nervous system, in which case, well, how does that happen? The whole point of calling it autonomic is that it's supposedly automatic. It doesn't need conscious control. But we know with biofeedback or meditation training, you can get incredible control all the way down to the single cells in your body. So... This is uh, maybe a clue as to why advanced practices like meditation, that people become or apparently become more psychically attuned simply because they can reach down deeper into the unconscious, because I think that's where the vast majority of this information is lurking all the time. Hmm. Dr. Raiden, I mean, that's an interesting thread. I'd, I'd, and I, you know, I really want to bring up technology's effect on your research and and what you think about how the global connectivity that we all have through the internet and I mean how does that affect these these abilities that we have and this global consciousness and being able to communicate almost instantly with a person across the world well in many ways technology is allowing us to do what could only be done through psychic means in the past. So this is even further reason why we don't need to express these abilities anymore. You don't need clairvoyance if you have TV, and you don't need telepathy if you have telephones and so on. So from that perspective, you can you can imagine that uh, in, in the future, all of these phenomena will have some technological underpinning to them. But of course, be very different at that point than what, what we're talking about, which is purely mind-based phenomena. 
So you may have seen in the news that Mark Zuckerberg was talking about the future of Facebook as being telepathy. Of course, what he means is brain-based telepathy, brain-computer interface work, and that's probably feasible. At some point, that'll probably be that'll be happening, uh, and people then assume that the kind of, of work that I'm doing is the same as that, and of course, it isn't. It's totally different because if psi phenomena are real, it's a strong argument that mind and brain are not identical. And of course, from a neuroscience perspective, that's that's anathema. And from a neuroscience perspective, the brain is the mind. Uh, I think that's probably not the case. There certainly are, are strong correlates with mind-like effects, but I don't think they're the same thing. In, in your experience, do you feel that some some people more than others have a proclivity or genetic sort of advantage in and have express stronger abilities than than others have you have you ever seen this oh absolutely no there's no doubt that the distribution of talent in this domain is probably normal in the same way that it is for sports or musical talent some people are simply more attuned to these kinds of phenomena. Uh, We know that it correlates with uh, schizotypy, which is the scale at at one end you're full-blown schizophrenic and the other other end you're completely not. Uh, And also with a personality um, trait of openness. How open are you to new experience? And a, a number of other traits as well. So you, if you simply do surveys uh, about people's professions, people's beliefs, you very quickly segregate people into types of people who have these experiences, and the people who have the experiences tend to do a lot better in actual controlled tests than people who don't have the experiences. So this is not surprising to me at all, given that uh, virtually anything you can think of that humans do will eventually fall into a normal curve. So there, there are going to be people at the far right of that curve. Dr. Radin, um, I'm assuming that some of these psi abilities can be trained. Which one of them, you know, like, uh, I don't know, seeing the future or uh, reading other people's thoughts? That's, I don't know all the terminology, but which one do you think would be the easiest to train for somebody? That depends on the person's talent. If, if you start with zero talent, you're never going to learn anything start with some talent, and it happens to be along the lines of empathy, for example, well, maybe you'll end up being a little bit better at telepathy than you might be at precognition. Uh, if you find somebody who's, who's really, really lucky in the casino, well, maybe they're better at precognition than telepathy and so on. Uh, it's not clear to me that somebody's going to be the equivalent of a polymath in this domain, although I imagine there, there could be a small percentage of highly talented people that might fit that uh, classification. The other thing about training, though, is that if you imagine that we're, we're talking about a normal curve, then by analogy, everyone can learn to play golf a little bit, but not everyone's going to become a pro, and not everybody's going to win the competitions either. So you need both high talent, very high talent, and a huge amount of practice to actually get any better. Um 
I, I understand what you're saying, but you know, you mentioned being briefed on a secret program and everything. And so that sort of implies that, um, we all may have abilities greater than we are aware of. And, um, you know, I, I know that you're familiar with Edgar Casey and his ideas about the Akashic record containing all information and, uh, that people just need to learn better how to tune into that non-local information. Um, do you think he was ahead of his time? Do you think that an information field or maybe a universal consciousness is um, behind these amazing, amazing people that uh, sometimes uh, show these abilities in the lab and in, in everyday life? Well, first of all, in the secret program, there were a very limited number of highly talented people. So there was no implication that this is a widespread ability. Uh, in terms of Edgar Casey, that was easy for him to say that everyone has this capability. I don't buy it. Nobody has exceptional capability in all domains. No one. So the, the underlying question, though, is, well, where do these exceptional people get the information from? And there you'll probably get as many different answers from the individuals as you ask them. They all have different concepts uh, as a general overarching story, it's something like the perennial philosophy, that there simply is, uh, that, that we have the, the sense that we are separate objects, that space and time are not really the same thing, and that matter and energy are different, and so on, like a classical physical perspective of the world. That's what common sense tells us. That's what the vast majority of people accept, unquestionably. You go into modern physics and suddenly you start to see that all of those assumptions are actually wrong. That we're talking about relationships between what looks like fundamental effects. We're talking about uh, core assumptions like reality, locality, and causality, none of which are true in quantum mechanics. And so a philosopher would say that common sense leads to a notion of naive reality. You know, we walk around as though what we're seeing is literally all there is. Physics and science have repeatedly told us that that's not all there is. We're seeing a very thin slice of reality. And the, the deeper we go into the fundamentals, the stranger and stranger begins to look. If you go deep enough, it begins to look like it's a holistic, fully interconnected something or other that transcends space and time. And so if human experience... Can, can kind of grasp that directly, then maybe there's an Akashic record and maybe there isn't, but at minimum, it means that some aspect of your experience can access literally anything in space and time. Well, that's what people talk about when they mention psychic or mystical experience. The, the difference between the two is that psychic experience is almost as though you can tap into what is actually already there. You're not going anywhere to get it. You are already embedded in a completely holistic, or if you wish, a holographic medium that contains all information throughout space and time. Uh, and you, you pull that information back and you experience it as a sense. Whereas a mystical experience is you don't pull it apart. You just feel like you are the hologram. You are the matrix or the a holistic environment and you get everything all at the same time. But then you can't talk about it because language fails at that level. That's why mystical experience is usually just called ineffable. Something happened. It, it transformed me, but I can't talk about it. So that that's why 
I, I may have uh, gone beyond your original question, but that's that's the riff I usually have on that topic. Hmm. I'm I'm really thoroughly enjoying this conversation and, and what we're discussing. Dr. Raiden, I've been sort of biding my time. I really want to know more about this secret project that you're working on and, um, you know, how how did you sort of get inducted into this group? Well, first of all, there, there's two parts to it. Uh, people like Ed Dames and a number of other people who are now known for remote viewing were part of the operational mission in the in the U.S. Army. So they weren't concerned about research. They were getting tasks every day, find out what's happening here and what's going on there. And they didn't have interest in or time really to do research. Uh, I was part of the research program where we didn't have any operational day-to-day stuff to do. We were tasked with two things. One was whether this represents a threat to national security. Like if this is the real phenomena, do we need to worry about the Chinese or the Russians or somebody else who might be using this? Is it a threat? The second part is if you think that the phenomena is real, how can you enhance it? What can we learn from it? How do we shield it? How do we block it? And so on, those kinds of things. So as as far as uh, threat analysis... Uh, we were pretty sure during that time in the 1980s that the Russians, at least at the time the Soviet Union, probably had a similar program that we did. Maybe the Chinese too, but we didn't know. Uh, we, we did know through defecting scientists and through uh, articles that had been retrieved that the nature of the research was slightly different than what we were up to, but uh, that they didn't know any more than we did. So that, that was comforting. We were convinced by the data that there was a real phenomena going on. It uh, wasn't as uh, robust or repeatable as we would have liked, but nevertheless, it was real and it was useful. So we had very good reasons to believe that the, the Russians and maybe some other countries had a similar program. So 20 years later, when there was a, a detente, uh, not only between our two countries, but also between the two programs – and it turned out that indeed there was a program in the Soviet Union which was much, much bigger than the one in the United States. Uh, so there's a very good recent book on this topic uh, by Ed May and a few other authors. Ed was the director of the Stargate program for about 10 years. And so he describes the U.S. side and the Russian side, both sides of, uh, of the Iron Curtain at the time on what both sides were doing. And, and so what used to be top secret in the U.S. and top secret in Russia are now both in the pages of this book. So what we don't know still today is uh, what is happening in China, uh, which is in probably India and a number of other countries. I do know that other countries track research in this area. Uh, not so much because they're actively doing something, but they're tracking it for the same reasons we did back in the 1980s. We want to see, uh, it, looking at this as a kind of a technology, uh, is there something to worry about? Is somebody going to get way ahead of what we understand? And that kind of thing. So I know that that, that kind of um, survey is still going on. Dr. Raiden, since you mentioned um, different countries, one of the things I've noticed is that um, people in different parts of the world um, 
can recognize names differently. For example, if you ask someone in the U.S. about Edgar Casey, they'll know who that is. But if you ask them about uh, Vanga from Bulgaria or Wolf Messing from Poland, they have no idea who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you've heard of those latter two names in your field. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any comments about the way that people understand this phenomenon between the countries and sort of the, the superstars that seem to pop up from time to time? Yeah, well, it makes sense that there's going to be cultural differences and also and language differences as well. Uh, the The Russian side was always a lot closer to uh, what we would call shamanism than in the U.S. The U.S. has uh, uh, probably more traditional religious notions about these kinds of effects. Uh, but there, and of course, the, the Far East has, has their own versions of. Qigong and prana and concepts like that. And so those put overlays on the nature of the phenomena. But when you actually analyze what do you mean, what, what, what are you talking about in terms of the experiences that people talk about or feel, they all fall into basically the same kind of taxonomy. And you find that even if you go back into the ancient yoga literature, which is I'm referring to my book, Supernormal, where I did this, you find that people were talking about these same phenomena 2,000 years ago. And probably well before that. So the the basic phenomena are probably the same. They get described differently and some distortions based on language and the history of each individual culture. But I think they're all the same. Hmm. That's very intriguing. I, you know, Dr. Reed Knight, I find your answers very to the point and you have a very eloquent way of, of explaining them. Um you you say that meditation is important to you, and is there a spiritual benefit, in your opinion, to meditation or practicing these abilities? At the beginning of your question, which okay. is, uh, why? what should we do with this? And so imagine that you were to ask Benjamin Franklin, why are you fooling out with these, with these little sparks and, and the kite flying and all that? What, what are you doing? Well, the, the answer is he was curious. Like here's, here's something that looks like a spark, and maybe it's related to these bolts of lightning, and uh, this is the essence of scientific exploration. And you don't need a, a reason other than curiosity. Uh, Benjamin Franklin might have been able to imagine that someday we'd have multi-gigawatt power grids around the world, but I doubt it. Uh, you don't need to even look that that long ago to people who are developing the first computers who are thinking that why would anybody need more than a mainframe for anything? So we have very limited foresight. Uh, even in a realm where we're studying precognition, it's very difficult to know eventually what this is going to turn into. Uh, the best way we have are stories that we hear about uh, from from science fiction and fairy tales, but even those are pretty well constrained. You do occasionally find a science fiction story that correctly anticipates something about future, but most of the time it's future technology. And so here we're talking about something which is way more fundamental than than simply a technological advancement. So, for example, we go back to 1900 when uh, Lord Kelvin, otherwise known as Sir William Thompson, gave a talk to the Royal Society about the state of physics. And he said, more or less, that physics is pretty well wrapped up except for two clouds. And by the the two clouds that he was talking about, we're we're saying that 
Uh, thermodynamics looks like it explains everything in the natural world. So if you're thinking about going into physics, don't even bother. Except for these two things, the ultraviolet catastrophe and the luminous ether. Those were the two unsolved mysteries. Well, one turned into relativity and the other turned into quantum mechanics. So from 1900 to the, uh, the beginning of the 21st century, that span of 100 years, if you had talked to physicists at the beginning of the 20th century, they would have no idea at all about what was about to happen. I mean, they were in the midst of the industrial age where everything was thought to be totally modern and, and up-to-date and basically finished, and the world completely changed because of these two little problems that had not been solved. Well, today we have two little problems that haven't been solved. One is called qualia, and the other one's called quanta. So qualia refers to inner experience, the sense of, of awareness, and quanta refers to the quantum measurement problem, namely that somehow the physical world seems to respond to measurement in some weird way. So a lot of physicists were saying, well, those are two minor things that will eventually wrap up. I don't think so. I think when we begin to understand these two little clouds, it will have as big an impact as uh, the two clouds that William Thompson was talking about in 1900. It will totally revolutionize civilization. I really want to be able to imagine a future in which we are actively using telepathy to communicate. I mean, is this... Is this something in the realm of of your imagination as as well? I mean, you you are a scientist and and you've kind of lived this and and this is your career. So, well, if we are lucky enough to survive as a species, given the uh, accumulating apocalyptic scenarios that face us now, uh, then eventually science will catch up to a better understanding of psychic and mystical experience. As I said just before, that that will cause a very radical change in our understanding about who we are, our relationship to the universe, how it all works, and that sort of thing. If you imagine at this point that we suddenly had the magic pill and can make everybody telepathic, that would probably destroy the world pretty quickly. Uh, and you can see this in fiction through stories or movies like uh, Forbidden Planet, that we simply don't have the capacity yet to have good control over our, our whims and desires. And our society and our laws and virtually every piece of the way that we interact with each other assumes privacy and and also assumes responsibility for your actions. Well, if you now are living in a hive mind, you know how this is portrayed in fiction. It's the Borg. It's the invasion of the body snatchers. It's every alien invasion where you get absorbed into the, into the grand mind. This is always presented as horrific. And I think the reason is that it's partially an American thing that we like to imagine we're the, the rugged independent cowboy. But the reality is that we're already extremely dependent on each other. And the level of dependency would go up to such a higher degree that most of the engine of society would have to change. It would change quickly. You can't have, you can't have, for example, a huge difference or the huge disparity in people who have an enormous amount versus people who don't have an enormous amount. Because part of the, the issue about becoming telepathic is that you feel other people's pain. So if you're a billionaire and you're walking past people who are starving on the streets, that can't happen. And so if, it, if that's going to go away, 
how does it go away? There has to be a gigantic redistribution of wealth. There's, you can just spin out pretty pretty quickly that the way that society is now will collapse very fast, and that's dangerous. You don't want things to collapse very quickly. You want them to collapse collapse in a, in a graceful way, kind of slowly in a way so that it's under control. Because otherwise, who knows how it's going to build itself back up? And this, of course, is another uh, storyline in lots of science fiction on the way that post-apocalyptic societies will rebuild themselves. There are many different ways of doing that. So, Dr. Sorry. So my, my hope is that uh, when, when we get closer to technologies and pharmaceuticals and other kinds of methods that can enhance psychic experience, because I think we're headed in that direction, that a, a lot of attention is paid to the unintended consequences of it. And so one possibility is uh, that it will create secret cabals of super psychics, who, it, which in itself is extremely dangerous because they could take over the world pretty quickly. And that yet another science fiction scenario. Uh, it, it might, if we're very lucky and leaders pay attention to this, there could be a way of slowly introducing these kinds of concepts. And a case can be made without too much conspiratorial thinking that one of the reasons that there are movies about these scenarios is to kind of remind the population that what if we were able to do this? Like movies like Lucy for example, or limitless, are kind of pushing in that direction. And the reason why I like both of those pictures is that although there is a lot of action in it and so on, they were very different than a lot of the previous films, all of which devolved very quickly into horror. Well, Lucy didn't devolve into horror, and nor did Limitless. They had much more positive uh, spin to the story. So I'm encouraged to see that, and I know that there are a number of people in Hollywood who are interested in the same trend to say, no, this is actually part of human potential and human evolution, and there are positive aspects to it as well. Dr. Radin, um, in in uh, some of the documentaries like DMT, The Spirit Molecule, I think it was um, Dennis McKenna was talking about <clears throat> how during some of the shamanic experiences, they feel that they uh, talk to various intelligences or get get pieces of information, and you know you just mentioned the idea of um, plant or chemical substances enhancing psychic ability, and um, <clears throat> one of the things that's always I always wanted to ask um, Dr. McKenna um, or his brother is, um, you know, if 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 a person were to get a piece of information in an altered state, is there any way that that could be verified? Um, I guess that's a kind of a complicated question, but um, maybe you could just speak to that or even to the whole issue of, do you feel that um, any plant substances can enhance psychic ability in any real substantive way that could be measured in the laboratory and that sort of thing? I've spoken to researchers who, uh, at medical schools, who are studying substances like uh, psilocybin and DMT, and they're very interested in the same question because their subjects involved in the experiments talk about it all the time. At minimum, they talk about telepathy. is just overwhelmingly strong. So we've talked about how do you do an experiment with somebody in these, uh, in these states uh, where we, you have the same level of control as you would if in a laboratory where you know what chance is and you 
get people to do these somewhat artificial tasks. And at this point, we don't know how to do it because one of the things that happens in, in extreme altered states of awareness uh, is that people don't want to play anymore. So I know from my own experience that if, if you're intoxicated enough, uh, depending on the substance, when somebody presents you with a task, now I want you to do this and this and that and that, internally you're thinking, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Why in the world would I want to do that? I don't want to do that now. I want to enjoy the experience. So the the closest we've come to thinking about how to do this is to work with participants who have ex- lots and lots of experience, for example, with psilocybin. So they know what the experience is like, they're comfortable with it, and they can still do tasks. And so there's the possibility in, still in the future of doing experiments like a presentiment experiment where they don't have to cognitively do anything. We're just monitoring their body and watching what happens. There's the possibility opening uh, for experiments that can be verified. Uh, the, the difficulty with it is that because those the drug experiments are still considered controversial, that just like I don't want to mix UFOs and ESP, uh, people doing psychedelic research don't want to mix it with psi, even though there's probably an overlap it's simply too too sensitive to do that. So we, we keep things separate for the sake of uh, keeping the science clean. Well, we are certainly covering some very intriguing material tonight. And we are approaching the end here, Dr. Raiden. But I would like to ask you if, you know, if there, if there was anything, you know, you've been doing this for a while and you have, you know, you've learned a lot. I mean, is there anything that you would tell your younger self to be aware of or anything that you would go back and kind of tell yourself? Yeah, I would tell myself in graduate school to take courses in the sociology of science and probably the philosophy of science as well, because it it was a rude awakening for me uh, after I had gotten into this field and was working at it for a while to see that the aspiration of science as a rational enterprise is simply not true. Academic freedom isn't true. The, the idea that scientists will evaluate data rationally is not true. All of those stories that we, we hear about the way that science is different from religion and is different from politics and all that, it's simply not true. Science is another human activity and it has the same frailties as every, every other kind of activity. The only thing that science has going for it is that there's very strong emphasis on rigorous methods and consensus opinion. So those are good. Unfortunately, consensus opinion is also an enormously efficient block for things that don't happen to fit the prevailing viewpoints. So for many respects, it's amazing that science has done as well as it has. And unfortunately, as science becomes more and more of a career rather than uh, a matter of expressing your curiosity, people find it more and more constraints about what they talk about. And what I mean by this is I'm kind of a lightning rod for scientists who are interested in this topic. So I get a lot of phone calls and emails from professors all over the place who are just anxious to tell me about their interests in psychic phenomena and sometimes their experiences. And then the end of every conversation is the same. Don't tell anybody that I spoke to you. Don't tell anybody that I did this experiment and I haven't published it and I'm not going to publish it even though it turned out good because there is a taboo. The taboo is you don't – it's like Fight Club. 
First rule is you don't talk about it. And, and the <laughs> second rule and the third rule, they're all the same rule. Don't talk about this because it's damaging for your, your standing in your career. So I would warn myself as, as a, a fledgling scientist to simply be aware that it carries a certain amount of risk whenever you, you start pushing against the prevailing viewpoint. And I don't think I would have done anything different because I guess I'm enough of an iconoclast that I don't care very much about what other people think. Uh, but I, I've just been astonished, really, to see firsthand cases of people who, in any other condition, you'd consider to be very smart, very accommodating, very tolerant, and completely insane when it comes to topics like this. You know, Dr. Reed and I can totally understand your um, frustration as a scientist. I got a little bit bored doing molecular biology experiments, and have, I'm off on a different direction right now. I think that curiosity you mentioned is so key. I mean, um, you mentioned moving on from wondering if psi effects are real, and now wondering how they work, how they actually work. And I think that is so, so true. I mean, I can't think of any other question more fascinating at this time in history than how are these effects working you know it's they cannot be blocked by a faraday cage they i think there was an experiment where they're not blocked at the bottom of the ocean you know mm -hmm. um it's just totally amazing so um i think your work is really is really cool and so what what encourages me about all this is that if you if i were to segregate uh scientists by their age the younger the scientist is, the more open they are about their interest and the more willing they are to come out of the closet, so to speak. That's a very encouraging sign. And this essentially is how science has progressed, that the, you know, science progresses by funerals, as Max Planck said. And in this case, the evidence continues to compound, the empirical evidence keeps compounding and gets better and better with time. Eventually, with, when people find better and better ways of presenting the evidence, even with explanations that are not completely correct but sound plausible, that we're, we don't longer have to deal with the baggage of older scientists because they're going to go away eventually. And younger scientists, of course, that are immediately going to be attracted to these topics. So the older I get, the more important it is I, that for what I can offer at, at this point is to write papers and books mainly targeting younger scientists. And when we can tell, for example, when we publish a paper on a site like Frontiers, we get tens of thousands of downloads. Well, we don't know what ages are doing the downloading, but just statistically, a lot of more young people are living on the Internet than older people. So it's a, it's a good bet that a lot of the interest is from younger folks, and that's, that's very encouraging. Well, Dr. Regan, you are uh, one of the men who stare at photons, apparently, and I Really do appreciate your time, sir. Misha, do you do you have anything on closing here with our guest? Yeah, I have one small question. Um, Dr. Radin, you've done these experiments where people affect random number generators. Uh, just real quick, if, is there an, an effect where if 10 people are fo focusing their attention or 100 people are focusing their attention, it'll be different than one person trying to show something in a laboratory? Well, unfortunately, we're not dealing with the linear effect. Uh, the, the the best metaphor I can think of is uh, something like a soap bubble. That uh, if you you have a one person who is is trying to balance a soap bubble, uh, they can do a certain degree. And if you have two people helping, that doesn't necessarily help 
because they may not be handling it in the same way and you can burst it. If you have 10 people all trying to do it at the same time, it could burst real fast. So the important ingredient that seems to help is coherence among people. And that does occur occasionally. When it occurs, people know it instantly. There's some kind of, they're in the zone. They feel something gel in the crowd. But it's relatively rare. It's very difficult to actually produce on demand. But when that happens, uh, experiments like field consciousness experiments do show that randomness begins to respond very quickly. It goes. It basically starts to become patterned. So, the, the, so it's not a. It's a nonlinear effect. And then the moment you get into nonlinearity, it's a much more complicated answer than simply ten is better than one. Hmm. Wow. Very powerful episode here, uh, Dr. Raiden. Where can people find your work? What is what is the next step for you? Well, two sites. One is uh, noetic.org, which is the Institute of Noetic Sciences website. Um, my own website is deanradin.com. Uh, sites for testing your abilities include gotsci.org and sciarcade.com. Uh, together, they've collected a half a billion trials from about a half a million people. And we're in the, in the midst of creating a smartphone version of those tests that we call PsyQ which is an, um, by analogy to IQ. We're attempting to establish population norms for different kinds of psychic ability uh, that people can carry around on their cell phones. This is The Human Experience. My name is Xavier. just want to thank my guest and Misha. Thank you. We are going to get out of here. We will see you guys next week.